Good morning, church. So I'm going to have him put this uh, picture up on the screen because in my mind, uh, when I picture this particular morning, uh, this is what I imagine, right? The water is calm and glassy. I imagine it as a warm, kind of a spring-like morning, something we have a hard time conceptualizing right now because apparently we live in the Arctic tundra uh, where spring never comes, but we're hoping, right? But anyway, this, this is what I imagined the morning was like. You can imagine, you know, kind of the, the, the moisture kind of rising off the, the, the water in a, in a low fog. And, and on the shores, the hustle and bustle of nets and things being readied for the catch of the day. And in fact, there's a couple of eager fishermen who are already out on the water. Uh, Peter and Andrew are already casting their nets. And, and I don't know, the, the text doesn't tell us if there was a commotion on the shore or, or how it happened, but... Uh, Jesus approaches Peter and Andrew, and he says something that to us sounds, sounds odd, but he says, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Now, an odd phrasing to us in, in modern day, but what he's telling, what Jesus is telling Peter and Andrew is, I want to change the trajectory of your life and the purpose of why you live. Rather than being fishermen, I want you to, to pour your life into me, to follow me, and to serve people for the cause of Christ and the kingdom of God. And what's shocking to me is it says in in the Gospel of Mark, Peter and Andrew dropped their nets immediately. Now, their their nets are their livelihood. This is likely their their family occupation that they've been raised into. They drop the nets immediately. You get the sense that without hesitation, they follow Jesus. Now, it says they walk a little way further down the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and, and James and John are in the boat with their father Zebedee, and they're getting their nets ready for the day. And likewise, Jesus says, I want you to come follow me. And it says, James and John left their father Zebedee in the boat and went with Jesus. Now, if, if I'm their father Zebedee, I'm like, cool guys, I'll just, I'll haul in the nets myself today. Thanks. Right? Like, is he frustrated? I don't know. His sons just left the family business. And this continues as Jesus recruits all of the 12 disciples. But what strikes me is that for each of them, they are leaving behind, the disciples are leaving behind what's familiar. They're leaving behind what's comfortable. And and they're leaving behind families and relationships to go all in in following Jesus. Now, this, this isn't something that you can easily return back to in turning their back on the family occupation. And by the way, at least for James and John, we know that they had hired men in the boat. They likely had a successful fishing operation. They had money. They had a life. They leave all of that behind to follow Jesus. Now, following Jesus was not an easy thing in this day and age. Jesus had this particular gift of agitating the, the religious elite of the day. He taught in a way that often confounded the the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And some of Jesus' teaching was incredibly difficult. At one point, not the 12, but a part of the larger group of disciples actually deserted Jesus. And Jesus looks at the disciples, the 12, and he goes, are you too going to leave when this teaching gets hard? And Peter says, Lord, where would we go? You have the words of life. But then this moment comes, right, where Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and soldiers show up and and they arrest Jesus. And and we know at least Peter's alarmed, right, because he draws his sword and and he's ready to fight. And Jesus says, Peter, put your sword away. And Jesus is arrested. Now, if if you're one of the disciples, you're, you're maybe starting to panic a little bit because you're thinking, I went all in on this Jesus thing. I gave up my, my livelihood. I walked away from my family. James and John literally left their father in a boat, left him behind, and they followed Jesus, and now he's arrested. 
We, we know for sure that Peter's rattled, right? Because as Jesus is arrested and goes under trial, uh, a servant girl looks at Peter and says, you, you follow Jesus, right? And Peter goes, no, not me. You've got me mistaken, right? He's intimidated. He's scared. He's nervous. And then I wonder what the disciples are thinking at the conclusion of that trial when Jesus is crucified, You do recognize that the crucifixion in in Jewish law, it says cursed is anyone who was hung on a tree. This was a cursed way to die. This was the death of criminals. This was the the death of political dissidents. And and we we often see the crucifixion, right, with a modesty cloth and we, we sort of tame it down. Jesus hung naked on a tree, ashamed and disgraced by culture. And then the disciples are watching this and you have to imagine that they're heart sick, right? On, on the one hand, they're grieving. This is our friend that we follow. And on the other hand, you have to imagine that they're scared and that they're panicked, wondering, are we next? We're his followers. And, and they're wondering, maybe, where do I go? What do I do? It's this moment where if you're one of the disciples, you have had your hopes literally crushed. The Gospel of John tells us that after the crucifixion, the the disciples are huddled together in an upper room and it says that the door is locked for fear of the Jews. Their hopes are crushed. They're terrified of what's going to happen to them and what the outcome of this is going to be. Until they are faced with both the truth and the tension of the empty tomb. Luke 24 verse one. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and they went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The son of man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up, ran to the tomb, bending over. He saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. There's two key questions I want to look at this morning. The first question is this, will we believe the truth of the empty tomb? Will we believe in the truth and the hope of the empty tomb? And and I say that this is, I I call this first point, the, the tension and the truth of the empty tomb, because the resurrection presents for us a tension point of will we put faith in who Jesus is and what he said he came to do? We live in a modern day and age, we're scientific, we're logical. It's easy to look at something like the resurrection and go, well, I mean, did it really happen? I mean, we're, we're modern people, we, we know a little bit better. Do, do we really have to believe the resurrection? 
Now, the, the early believers, they wrestled with this, right? Uh, the women on their way to the tomb, they go to the tomb fully expecting to find a body. The spices that they bring are burial spices. And, and it says when they approach the tomb that they notice that the stone is rolled away. And as they enter the tomb looking for the body, did you notice that the text in Luke's gospel says they were wondering what happened? They fully expected to find Jesus' body there. So the, the, the women, alarmed by this, they run back to, to the disciples and they say, we found the tomb and it was empty. And notice the disciples' response in verse 11. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. And that they all forgot that Jesus himself prophesied that this would happen. And in church, the tension of the disciples and the tension of the early believers is our tension. Will we believe in the truth and the hope of the resurrection or we, will we, like the disciples who have forgotten the truth of Jesus, go, that sounds like nonsense. But I want to suggest to you this morning that our faith hinges on our trust and acceptance and belief in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the second question I want us to wrestle with is this. Why does the resurrection matter for us as believers? What, what is the significance of this, right? Every, every year around Easter, we start talking about the crucifixion and resurrection. But this morning, church, I want to pause and I want to ask, what does this mean for us? What is the significance of this for us? Because sometimes we get so used to the, the rhythm and routine of this language, if you've been in the church for a while, that we stop being amazed at what happened in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Now, as we walk through these questions, I, I want to start with this. The, the truth is that the resurrection is core to Jesus' identity and mission, right? If you are going to come to terms with who Jesus is, you have to come to terms with that his death and resurrection are core to his mission and his identity, who he is and what he came to do. In fact, Jesus himself claimed to be the Messiah. Luke chapter 9, verses 20 to 22 says it this way. This is Jesus' own words about himself. He's speaking to the disciples and he says, but what, what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you're God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell anyone about this. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief, chief priests and the teacher of the law and must be killed and on the third day raised to life. And here Jesus is telling his disciples, listen, and, and by the way, did you notice he tells them when Peter says, oh, you're the Messiah, he warns them not to tell anyone? Doesn't that seem odd at first? Like, if you think I'm the Messiah, shouldn't you want to tell everyone? He, he, here's the problem. Peter has in mind the Messiah as, as a political leader who will lead the Jewish people into the overthrow of Rome. So Peter is hoping for a political rebellion. And so when he says, yes, you're God's Messiah, he has in mind not the gospel teaching of Jesus as the one who comes to bring freedom from sin and death. Peter has in mind, yes, you are the rebellious leader who will overthrow Rome. And Jesus goes, yeah, don't tell anybody that. <laughs> he goes, Here, here's what is going to happen. He says, I'm going to suffer, be handed over to the chief priests and teachers of the law. I'm going to be killed. Now, that, that is a terrible recruiting method, Right? I'd like you to come follow me. By the way, the people in charge, they're going to kill me. Right? That, that, that is like rule number one of how to lose followers. And, and, but Jesus is telling him, listen, you don't have in mind this right understanding of what the Messiah is going to do. I'm going to be put to death and three days later rise again. Now, you, you would think that would be something memorable that would stick with you. And yet by Luke 24, the disciples had forgotten. Right? It's not until for the women that arrive at the tomb, it's not until the angels appear and say, don't you remember his words? It's only after that proclamation that they remember. And yet, church, if you were going to read the Gospels, we come face to face with this uh, reality that Jesus claims about himself that he is God's anointed one, the son of God 
who will die and rise again. Not only does Jesus claim that, but the resurrection in scripture is a fulfillment of prophecies about Jesus. Luke 24 verses 44 says it this way. Uh, This is Jesus talking about himself. And it says this, he said to them, to the disciples, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. And so Jesus is reminding the disciples, I came to bring all those messianic prophecies to fulfillment in the time and place and in the way that God has ordained. And so here's the thing, church, sometimes in our culture, we want to call Jesus like a good moral teacher. I'm not sure about the son of God stuff. Maybe he was a good moral teacher. Listen, you cannot call Jesus a good moral teacher if you believed he lied about being the son of God. C.S. Lewis draws us into this dilemma in some of his writing. He says, for Jesus to claim to be God, he's either who he says he is as Lord, either he's a lunatic or he's a liar. Now, if he's a liar, he can't also be a good moral teacher because his whole ministry would be built on lies. Now, if, if you claim to be the son of God and you're not, you have to be crazy on the level of just being a lunatic out of your mind. And yet Jesus seems totally rational. There's nothing in the scriptures that indicate he's out of his mind. And, and so C.S. Lewis says, like it or not, you must wrestle with the fact that Jesus truly believed he was the son of God, as did the disciples who followed him. And we're drawn into a similar dilemma. Church, the question for us is, what will we believe about the truth of the resurrection? We can't set it aside because the resurrection is core to who Jesus is and what he claims to do. You can't settle for the lie that he's just a good moral teacher because to do so, you have to set aside all of his teaching. So here's the question I want to push into. As believers who have said, yes, Jesus, I am following you and I believe that you are who you say you are. I want us to just pause this morning and reflect on the significance of what the resurrection means for us. And I want to invite us into, I, I, I loved, by the way, that both the women who arrived at the tomb and the disciples, it says they wondered about this. I want to draw us into this place of, of wondering and thinking and reflecting about theologically and practically and personally what the resurrection means for you and I. So let's dive into this. What, what is the meaning and significance of the resurrection for us? Number one, it's this. The resurrection is core and foundational to the gospel. The resurrection, Jesus Christ rising from the dead is core and foundational to the gospel. As we walk through this, I I want to read part of Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 1. Now, Corinth uh, was this uh, very metropolitan city, uh, a significant trade route passed through Corinth. And so Corinth is a community that has been influenced by all sorts of ideologies and philosophies. Uh, Corinth is a very global community right? More so than most ancient cities of its day because of the trade routes and and the very diverse groups of people that it would have brought through the town. Now, Paul writes this letter at Corinth to, to remind and encourage the believers about unity and worship and to remind them about the core of the gospel. In fact, if you read Paul's letter in its entirety, he begins his letter by focusing on the crucifixion. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Right? And when you think about it, from a worldly perspective, the message of the cross does sound foolish. To think that the God of all creation is going to gain victory by being put to death on a cross, objectively, culturally, that sounds foolish. But Paul says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who were perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
Now, at the end of Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, he comes back to the truth of the gospel, and he says, now I want to focus on the resurrection. Because there were some in the, in the church at Corinth who were saying, ah, maybe we can just set aside the resurrection thing. Do we really have to hold to the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of believers? Maybe we can set that aside. And Paul finishes his letter by saying, no, 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 absolutely not. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Paul says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you have taken a stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born." Now, listen to what Paul says as he writes this. He's winding down his letter, and at the first part of chapter 15, he says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. Paul's going, okay, remember that truth that I brought to you that I proclaimed in your midst. He goes, don't lose sight of that. He goes, I want you to remember what I gave to you in this teaching that you received and on which you've taken a stand. Right? Paul is recognizing that for the believers in Corinth to receive and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ meant that they had to take a stand. To be a Christian in Corinth in the first century meant that you were flying against the grain of culture. They would have had to take a stand. They likely would have been persecuted for their faith. And Paul goes, don't so easily set aside what you received and on which you've taken a stand. You've sacrificed for this. You've given for this. Paul goes, don't so easily set it aside. Verse two, he says, by this gospel, and by the way, the word gospel means good news. By this good news, you are saved. Now to be saved means to be set free from sin and to be set free from death. And Paul will explain that later. He says, by this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, your belief is in vain. Paul goes, don't, don't let this be set aside. You can't set aside this teaching of the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. Paul says, hold firmly to this. Listen to what he says in verse three then. He says, for what I received, and what Paul means there is he received this teaching from the apostles. He received this teaching from Jesus. On the road to Damascus, Jesus appeared to Paul, knocked him off his horse. He has this transformative moment, and and Paul is given the gospel uh, by Jesus Christ. Paul goes, what I received, I passed on to you. Notice what he says, verse 3, as of first importance. That's a significant phrase. Paul says, this teaching that I gave to you was of primary importance. In other words, Paul says everything hinges on this, this teaching of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This is priority. This is prime. This is of first importance. And, and here, then, Paul summarizes this teaching. What I received, I pass on to you. This is most important. He says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and raised on the third day. And by the way, that, those two little verses there, most scholars believe that this was an ancient creedal formula that uh, was formed within the first five years of Jesus' crucifixion. That this was a common teaching and refrain in the church that Jesus Christ died on the cross, was buried and raised again on the third day. And Paul is telling the believers at Corinth, you know this, you've heard this uh, said in the creed over and over. Paul goes, don't set that aside. That Jesus died and rose again. 
Now, what I also find is interesting is that as Paul continues writing, he says, oh, by the way, in verse five, he said, Jesus appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the 12 disciples. He says, after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. And notice what Paul says. He says, and most of them are still living. Now, there's several things happening here that are just off the charts amazing in antiquity. Uh, the letter of Corinth to the church of Corinth was written within two to two and a half decades after the death and resurrection of Jesus, which to have a document that is written within such close proximity to the events in which they happen and to have access to a document that's reliable is just off the charts in terms of antiquities. Now, the other thing that is amazing that, that Paul says is he goes, by the way, there are over 500 witnesses to this. Now, in a Jewish court of law, you needed to have your argument or or your perspective verified by at least two witnesses. If you didn't have two witnesses in a Jewish court, you didn't have a case. And Paul goes, there are so many witnesses to this over 500. And at the time that Paul is writing to the church of Corinth, he goes, oh, and by the way, if you doubt this, most of those witnesses are still living. The believers in the church of Corinth literally could have traveled and met the the, the very eyewitnesses who saw Jesus after the resurrection. Mind-blowing, right? That there are this many witnesses alive at the time that Paul is writing this letter. Paul says, this can be verified. And so as he's writing to the church of Corinth, he goes, don't set aside the teaching of the resurrection. This is true. And he says, the whole gospel hinges on it. So meaning and significance of the resurrection. Number one, it's core and foundational to the gospel. We can't set it aside. Number two, the resurrection is the root of our hope as believers. Listen to what Paul says, starting in verse 12. He says, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him uh, if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins." then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this world we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then uh, the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he's destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he's put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it's clear that that doesn't include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God will be all in all. I'm going to jump over to verse 54. When the perishable has been closed with imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. So here in this part of the letter, Paul now addresses uh, more directly those who said that the resurrection didn't happen. Again, there are believers in Corinth who who want to set aside that teaching. And Paul goes, listen, he said, if it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can you say that this isn't true? Paul goes, essentially, and he says this, you're calling us liars. We are false witnesses if we've said something that's not true. 
And what Paul was trying to affirm there to the believers at Corinth is that he is convinced as one who saw Jesus after the resurrection that Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. But then Paul starts to use really strong language. He says in verse 14, he says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. That's pretty direct language. Paul goes, we, and the, the crucifixion is so easily verifiable in terms of Roman law. People saw it happen. There, there, there are uh, um, language, words are failing me. Uh, documents, that's what I was trying to look for. Uh, documentation, right? That Jesus was crucified on the, on the cross. And Paul goes, we've got 500 witnesses that saw him raised. He goes, if you believe in the crucifixion, but set aside the resurrection, he goes, your faith is worthless, See, what Paul is trying to remind the believers of is this truth that it's in both the crucifixion, the death of Jesus on the cross that vicariously in our place pays the penalty for our sins and the resurrection. The two must go together, right? So I I put together this little diagram that makes it simple. It's death and resurrection equals hope. Paul goes, if you want to set aside the resurrection, if you think that didn't happen, he uses strong language. He says, your faith is useless. I didn't say it, Paul said it. Then in verse 17, Paul says it this way, and he says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Paul goes, if there is no resurrection, if there's only a crucifixion, but no resurrection, Paul goes, you're still in your sin. Think about it. If Jesus died on the cross, that means death won. That means sin won. It is in the resurrection that Jesus conquers sin and conquers death. By the way, at the end of that, I read verse 54 for you, right? Where Paul says death has been swallowed up in victory, Paul is reading or writing the prophecy out of Isaiah chapter 25. Let me read this for you. That prophecy about the resurrection is this. Isaiah 25, 6, it says, On this mountain, that's Zion, Jerusalem, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wine. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people. He's talking about death. The sheet that covers up all nations, catch this, he will swallow up death forever. I I love the strong imagery of this, that in Jesus' death and resurrection, he swallows death and in rising again, diffuses and destroys the power of sin and the power of death. And so the prophet Isaiah continues writing. It says, he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. And this is a prophecy about the decisive victory of the Messiah who conquers sin and death and deals with the shame and the trauma and the destruction that a broken people have faced in a broken world. Pastor Dave mentioned this, but we just talked through this whole series about becoming whole. And we talked about working through forgiveness and we talked about working through things like conflict and we talked about the reality of our places of wounding and our places of trauma. Church, those things are found to be transformed and to experience healing in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in the power of his grace. It is the resurrection that changes everything. So the significance of the resurrection is core and foundational to the gospel. It it is the root of our hope as believers that Christ rose from the dead. And by the way, did you notice in in, uh, chapter 15 uh, that Paul says, for as in Adam all uh, all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. 
Adam brings sin into the world and sin brings death. But he says in Christ who conquered sin and death in his uh, crucifixion on the cross and rising to de- or from the dead thereafter, he conquers sin and death. And then he says this, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, each in turn. Christ, the first fruits. Now, when he talks about Christ as the first fruits of the resurrection, the first fruits means there's more to come. And what Paul is, is trying to get across to the believers at Corinth is this. We believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we believe that he will return. And when Christ returns, we too will be raised to new life with him. That's why Paul says, if only in this life we have faith in Christ, he goes, we're to be pitied of all people. In other words, why would we suffer for faith if it only matters right now? Paul goes, the hope that we experience isn't just for right now, it's in the life to come. And the beautiful truth of the resurrection is that if Jesus rose from the dead, we too will be raised from the dead when Christ returns. And this is exactly what Paul says. He says, verse 23, but each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him likewise will be raised to life. And by the way, church, sometimes when we think about the life to come, you know, we talk about like, oh, somebody got their angel wings, or we talk about the life to come as if we're disembodied spirits. Paul is adamantly affirming here a bodily resurrection of believers and an embodied existence in the life to come in the presence of God Almighty. And Paul goes, that is a beautiful hope. And we cannot set that aside. It's core to the very gospel that Paul is teaching. So why does the resurrection matter? It's core and foundational to the gospel. It's the root of our hope. And two, or three, this message of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is transformative. It changes us, right? And, and Paul uses himself as an example. Let, let's go back to uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 9 through uh, 11. Paul says, for I am the least of the apostles. I don't even deserve to be called an apostle uh, because I persecuted the church of God. Now, that's to put it mildly. Paul oversaw the murder of Christians. In fact, if you read the book of Acts, Paul gladly held the cloaks of people who were murdering Christians. Can you, can you, can you imagine like the cold heartedness where Paul goes, hey, I'm just trying to do my part as a civic servant. Let, let me hold your coats while you murder this guy. I mean, th- this was the level of hatred that Paul had for the church. And that's why he goes, I, I don't deserve to be called an apostle. But listen to what he says. He says, But by the grace of God, verse 10, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach. And this is what you believed. Now, what Paul is saying there is, I I don't deserve to be called an apostle. I was the one who persecuted the church. And yet Paul had this transformative encounter with the risen and resurrected Jesus that changed and transformed his life. Paul goes, I've moved from the one that murdered Christians to now being a leader in the church and preaching you the gospel. He says, I've been transformed by the grace of God and an encounter with the resurrected Lord. By the way, did you notice his unique statement in verse eight? He says, and last of all, he appeared to me as to one abnormally born. What Paul means by that is he goes, Jesus appeared to me on the road to Damascus. You can read Paul's story in the book of Acts. Paul, Paul was not uh, proximally present to the ministry of Jesus. It was later. When he talks about being one abnormally born, he, he means the risen, resurrected Jesus appearing to him on the road when he was traveling to Damascus. And Paul goes, I had this encounter. Jesus Christ appeared to me. And that, that interaction with the risen and resurrected Jesus changed and transformed my life, moving me from a murderer of Christians to a leader in the church. 
church, this is why it matters. You are not stuck in who you used to be. You are not stuck in who you are now. Maybe you're sitting here right now and there's this addiction, there's this habit, there's this way of living, there's this thing that has you in bondage and oppression, there's this place of unforgiveness, there's this place of anger and resentment that you can't get free from and you go, I want to follow Jesus more fully and yet I've got this thing that I don't know how to deal with. Listen, church, if God can raise Jesus from the dead, if he can make a murderer into a leader in the church in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, he can change and transform your life. If God can conquer death, addiction is no biggie. If God can conquer death, forgiveness is not a challenge for him. The things that are hard for us are easy for him. The God who has the power to bring Jesus back from the dead has the power to change and transform us from the inside out. And this is the resurrection power and hope of Jesus Christ, that you are not doomed to be stuck in the place that you are, but you can be made new. And Paul goes, if that isn't true, this means nothing. But the beauty and hope of the gospel is that it's transformative and it changes people. Here's the fourth reason why the resurrection matter. It cultivates steadfast living and gospel urgency. Let me read 15, 54 to 58. This is Paul now finishing this chapter about resurrection. Verse 54. He says, when the perishable has been clothed with imperishable. Now there Paul is talking about when we are raised to new life and our perishable body, we're given a new and glorified body in heaven. He says, and the mortal with immortality then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Boom, there it is, church. But thanks be to God. Let let, let that just settle in. But thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, he's given us the victory. Look at verse 58, though. There's this little word, therefore, right? Paul goes, because of that, because of the victory, because of what uh, God is doing for us and giving us new life in Jesus Christ, he says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. He goes, if we believe in the truth and the transformative power of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he says, stand firm. And he says, let nothing move you. He says, always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Notice again, Paul's strong language. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Paul doesn't say, "Eh, if you feel like it, you might might think about giving yourself to the work of the Lord. Paul doesn't say, "When, when you feel motivated, when you wake up and spring has finally broken and the sun is up and you're feeling in a good mood, then you might give yourself to the work of the Lord. Paul goes, no, no, no. If the, if the truth of the resurrection is, is, is true, and Paul says, I believe it is, and he's encouraging the believers to receive it, as he said previously, as of first importance, Paul says, if this is true, he goes, therefore, always, in every environment, in every moment, give yourself fully, completely, entirely to the work of the Lord. Church, this means it transforms everything that we do. When you go to work, you were thinking about, how can I give myself to the work of the Lord to bear witness to the truth, hope, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? When, I, when I'm with my family, how can I be about this thing that God wants to do in the life of my family? This changes the course and the trajectory of our life. Paul says, if the resurrection is true, everything changes about the way that we live. Paul goes, stand firm. And and remember, the the church at Corinth, they knew persecution. They lived in in, in a culture where where the church was anything but welcomed. And Paul goes, let the truth and hope of the resurrection be the thing that encourages you to stand firm. 
And the truth and hope of the gospel changes everything. So how do we respond to this? I, I want to leave us with, with three things. Number one is, is simply reflecting. And I want you to just think about this question. How is the truth of the resurrection significant in your life and your faith? And I know like every year, right? I mentioned this at Easter, we think about the crucifixion and we think about the resurrection. And if you've been in the church for a long time, maybe we become numb to the truth of this. Maybe we stop being struck by the amazing extent that Jesus went to to bring us life and to give us hope. And so I, I want to invite you to spend time thinking and praying and reflecting on what the truth and hope of the resurrection means for you personally. Secondly, I want you to think about responding to this. Uh, maybe you're someone who's never followed Christ, and maybe today's a moment where you would say, I want to know the hope and the truth of resurrection power personally in my life. Let this be a moment where you respond in faith. And finally, church, I think we should respond in worship that the resurrection should call us to respond in praising and glorifying and thanking God for who he is and what he did for us. Let me leave you with the end of Luke's gospel. Luke 24, verse 50. It says, when he, that's Jesus, had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple praising God. Now, th this is a far cry from the disciples who, when the, the women come from the tomb and say, oh, there's no body in the tomb, the disciples go, that's nonsense. Do you see how far they've come? From this place where their hopes are crushed, they're hiding behind a locked door, to this moment at the end of Luke's gospel when they are at the temple ceaselessly in praise and thanksgiving and in worship of God. And it says, and they were filled with joy because of their encounter with the resurrected Jesus. And church, when we talk about a living and resurrected Savior, we mean that you right now can have a real relationship with the God of all the universe. That he's not far off, he's not distant and disconnected, that the resurrected Jesus is here and he's present and he desires and wants a relationship with you. And when we enter into that relationship and experience the transformative power of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our only response can be one of praise and worship filled with joy. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. I think of, of Paul's um, letter to the Philippians where he says, y'all's attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being found in appearance as a man, he, Jesus, humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And, and Father, on the one hand, our minds are blown that you would love us so much to send your only son to die in our place. And yet the hope of the gospel is not that Jesus died, it's that he rose again. And Jesus, as you rose again, you conquered sin, you conquered death. And so we can say with Paul, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Because you, Jesus, have swallowed up death forever. So Lord, would you grace us in the power and presence of your Holy Spirit to receive the truth of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus from a place of grace-empowered faith 
And may it, as Paul says, help us to stand firm. And may we, because of the truth and the hope of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, always give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. And may we be a changed people because of it. We love you. We thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.